Welcome to Rotcast. You've already heard a bit about my father, his uncanny ability to create Halloween costumes and Christmas pageant costumes from common, ordinary building materials was one facet of the man. Yes, he was a carpenter. I talked about him in episode 7. My dad is working on his fifth family. I was in his second family. I called him on Father's Day recently, and it was maybe our most natural conversation. I tried to record it, but the suction cup microphone kept falling off, so I didn't get a whole lot. The call didn't start well, either. He explained that I was the last of his children to call. I said I thought about calling the date earlier to beat the rush. And in the middle of this, my brother called, and I got put on call waiting while my father talked to him for the second time that day. After a few minutes, he came back on and asked if I wanted to talk to my brother. I suggested that I call back later. He said, no, no, I'll talk to your your brother later. But after that, the call picked up and we talked uh, at a good long time. Maybe some guilt on his part made the call better. I had come to the call with an agenda. I wanted to record my father saying something he always told me when I was growing up. I explained this and he agreed to say it. Here it is. Friends are better than money in the bank. If you don't understand this poor recording, he's saying friends are better than money in the bank. He was genuinely happy that I remembered him giving me this advice. We discussed whether he had actually said friends are like money in the bank or better than money in the bank. And I suggested that we should go with the former as it sounded less mercenary. After we hung up and after I realized that I didn't really get anything worth podcasting from the recording, I started to outline what we'd talked about in the phone conversation. And then I realized it sounded almost like poetry. I'm going to read you the best call so far, Father's Day 2010. He talks about how he needs to keep working. He looks for a dwelling to rehab, a house to flip. He has just finished some drywalling. He talks about how his body is failing, bad rotor cup on his right shoulder. The back and forth is good. I explain some difficulties I had with a client. I'm a bit tongue-tied because the emotion is choking. I tell him I will send him samples so he can see. He reassures me by saying he has kept some magazines I've worked on, saved in his drawer. He says when he gave me that advice, he wasn't practicing what he preached. 
Now he has found religion, he thinks he may have been a terrible husband and father. We talk about his new wife. I express gratitude to this woman, younger than myself, for taking care of him, my old man. My old man was a bread stasher all his life. He never got fat. He wound up with a used car, a 17-inch screen, and arthritis. What is truth? Tamara Drag. You are old, Father William, by Lewis Carroll. Read for LibriVox.org by Ruth Golding. You are old, Father William, the young man said, and your hair has become very white, and yet you incessantly stand on your head. Do you think at your age it is right? In my youth, Father William replied to his son, I feared it might injure the brain. But now that I'm perfectly sure I have none, why, I do it again and again. You are old, said the youth, as I mentioned before, and you have grown most uncommonly fat. Yet you turned a back somersault in at the door. Pray, what is the reason for that? In my youth, said the sage, as he shook his grey locks. I kept all my limbs very supple. By the use of this ointment, one shilling a box. Allow me to sell you a couple. You are old, said the youth, and your jaws are too weak for anything tougher than suet. Yet you finished the goose, with the bones and the beak. Pray, how did you manage to do it? In my youth, said his father, I took to the law, and argued each case with my wife, and the muscular strength which it gave to my jaw has lasted the rest of my life. You are old, said the youth. One would hardly suppose that your eye was as steady as ever. Yet you balanced an eel on the end of your nose. What made you so awfully clever? I have answered three questions, and that is enough, said his father. Don't give yourself airs. Do you think I can listen all day to such stuff? Be off, or I'll kick you downstairs. End of poem. This recording is in the public domain. In what way did you break the most sacred of commandments? I dishonored my father. That is not so bad. Maybe your father deserved it. What did you say? I said, tell me more, my child. Well, I tried to behave properly the way my father would like me to. But I'm afraid my heart is too wild. Too wild? Yes. Could you be a little more specific about that? I had impure thoughts about a man. <gasps> no dating till you graduate. That's it. <sighs> Daddy, that's so unfair. All right, you want to know what's unfair? This is for you two. This morning, I delivered a set of twins to a 15-year-old girl. Do you know what she said to me? I'm a crack whore who should have made my skeezy boyfriend wear a condom? Close. But no. She said... I should have listened to my father. She did not. Well, that's what she would have said if she wasn't so doped up. Okay, here's how we solve this one. Old rule out. New rule. Bianca can date. When she does. 
But she's a mutant. What if she never dates? Then you'll never date. Oh, I like that. And I'll get to sleep at night. The deep slumber of a father whose daughters aren't out being impregnated. Hey, Dad. Why do you love me more than your other children? Beat it. I'm reading a sports page. Let's have a conversation, Dad. Let's bear our souls and get to know one another. I don't want you to get to know me. I like being an enigma, not scram. Am I a Meacham, Dad? Can girls be real Meachams? Girls without jump shots? Lillian! Dad, I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant by a Negro, Daddy. His name is Rufus. I didn't want to tell you, but since we're bearing our souls to each other, Rufus is a pacifist. A pacifist homosexual. Jesus, hey, Christ, Lillian. I'm going to the club. I'll see you all at the game. Can't stand it around here. But you'll get to like him after a while, Dad. Dwarfs are easy to like, especially when they're bald and cross-eyed. Dad! 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 All right, Chief. What do you say we tame this Bronco, huh? I'm scared. I know. You know what? I'm going to be right here with you. Always. Daddy, I can't. Well, we can. We can do it together. You and me. Spirit and guts. What do you say? Okay. All right, come on. Now, you just take your time. I'm not going to let go until you say it's okay. Okay. All right? All right, stop pedaling. That's it. Get your balance. Ready? Wait. Okay, okay, I'm still here. Okay. All right. It's all you. Look at me. It's all you. It's all you, Chief. Look at me, Dad. Hey, hey look at you. You're doing it. it. Look at you. I'm doing it. <laughs> You're doing it. I'm doing it. <laughs> How's it feel? Good. Huh? It's <laughs> Look at you. Balance like a you like a circus act. Look at you. Next, the Juicy Truth. Now it's time for the Juicy Truth, the best in Venostalgia. V-nostalgia is a trademarked phrase for use in Juicy Truth and Rockcast programs only. Tonight we are drinking a Pinot Noir from Chile called Conosur. That is the Spanish for Southern Cone, which comprises the area 
this wine comes from, which is Chile, Argentina, and that long strip along South America with the Pacific Ocean on the west and the Andes Mountains on the east. I'm here with number 11. Okay, so number 11, would you mind describing the label of Konosur? The label has a bicycle standing on it. When I was uh, trying to figure out what wine we would have with the father's episode, number 11 came up with an idea I thought was terrific. I thought of a story that Rotwang told me about when he was a little boy, that when his father taught him how to ride a bike. So I thought, well, let's use a bicycle. I've seen several labels with bicycles, so let's go find one. And we did. This is how they described the wine. It's rich in fruit notes, cherry, raspberry, strawberry. It has a little bit of smoky flavor. It has fine tannins. It says it's balanced, we hope so. Then it says it's sexy. It says it pairs well with uh, pasta, seafood, pesto sauces, mushroom pizza, sushi. And we have none of those items. Number 11, what are we going to pair with it tonight? Some very weird looking fruit. We have Asian pears from Chile. We have a quince fruit from Chile. We have a chirimoya. It's a really strange, strange looking fruit. Uh, some of them are shaped like hearts. Of course, it's from Chile too. Well, hopefully that this will give your palate a break from the disgusting flavor of wine. You said it, mister. Uh, we also have almond cinnamon cookies. Number 11, here's a cherry moya. You should smell it first. I read that it uh, should have a, a scent sort of like bubblegum. Yeah, only if that bubblegum's between your toes. It smells like cheese. <laughs> really? That's weird. I don't smell cheese. Uh, I'm very excited about finding this new exotic fruit. I've never tried it before. Uh, they also said online that uh, a lot of wine fanciers enjoy this with wine. It's supposed to have flavors of banana and pineapple. And when you say exotic, you just mean expensive, right? It was expensive. So I think I'll stick to the Asian pear. Thank you. When I was thinking about pairings and what Chileans eat, I thought, of course, of Chilean sea bass, and I thought of guinea pigs. But then I looked that up, and I couldn't find anything about them eating guinea pigs in Chile. Yeah, you probably just didn't find any good recipes. Well, can you whip me up a, a guinea pig? If you cut it and clean it. <laughs> well, I did see a, a Google picture of a deep-fried guinea pig, you know, and it... You know, it was funny. They eat guinea pigs in Peru, you reject. The wine has been sitting for probably about 10 minutes. We're swirling it, and the, my first sip of this wine, it uh, attacked my uh, salivary glands very strongly. It was very sour, um, which I, I never really mind a, a, a sourness. Uh, I, I don't detect a lot of alcohol uh, number 11, what is the alcohol content percentage? 
It's 13.5%. It has a uh, a large bouquet. I, I smelled it as soon as I opened the bottle. It came and found me. But it doesn't smell strongly of alcohol. It has a very good aroma. What do you think about the color? I think it's uh, on the purple side. To me, it's not like crystal clear, like gem colored. It's a little off to me, so I wouldn't give it a perfect. Definitely not a 10. I can see that. We did say that you can see through it. There's no sediment. It's not nasty looking. A lot of times I think that the high, uh, higher alcohol content makes me think of a bigger bodied wine. This is, seems like a medium bodied wine to me. I like that. I don't think I like the super heavy uh, bodied wine unless I am eating something with it. Number 11, are you dunking your cookies in the wine? Yeah. The clarity's changed now in my bot, my glass. Yeah, I would guess so with the co- cookie crumbles all in it. I've never seen anyone do that. And I don't think I'll ever try it again. Well, you don't have to finish that if you don't want to. Okay. What do you think uh, for body and uh, aroma notes? When I first smelled it, there was an underlaying of maybe strawberry, rotten strawberry, almost. But it was just very faint, and I haven't smelled it again. The taste isn't too bad, but on its own, if I wasn't eating some of these other interesting things, I would have to say that it was a bit boring. Well, it's definitely sourish, but not bitter, more sour uh, flavor. And it's strong. It was never put into oak barrels of any kind. It was probably uh, fermented in uh, stainless steel, which is another strike against it in the complexity department. This might be better cold, like they said, because it would take that uh, sour edge off of it, maybe. Like, it's sour like lemon, almost. Citrus. Cool beans. Acid balance is one of the first things you'll notice once you're tasting a wine, if it's off. I'm going to say it's fairly well balanced. If it didn't have that going for it, the uh, sourness, it would almost be like drinking a watery, flat wine. So the alcohol balance is good. And the price, the price is around 10, and that's the price we're trying for, so it should get a score of 10. If it's not a good wine, then $10 is way too much. Right. I don't think I would buy this wine again, even though it's uh, nicely priced. We might revise the score that once we try it chilled. It does say serve cool. Number 11 is calculating the score for Connoisseur Pinot Noir 2008. The final score for Connoisseur Pinot Noir 2008 is a 74. That's all the time we have for this episode of Juicy Truth. Next episode, let's talk a little bit more about the serving temperature of reds and white wines. Thanks, number 11. Great show. You can't handle the juicy truth.
Welcome to Dead Air. As promised, we're airing here for the first time the original Dead Air episode. This was how all the Dead Air shows were meant to be. Very short. But we weren't able to rehearse this one or polish the script, so it sounds like a cold reading. This Dead Air was about the father of the Dada movement in art. My first guest died in 1968, Marcel Duchamp. He was a French artist whose work is most often associated with the Dadaist and Surrealist movements. After making himself famous in 1920s America, Duchamp began advising art collectors, such as Peggy Guggenheim, helping to shape the tastes of Western art. He was known for incorporating chants into his artistic process. He demonstrated his sense of humor with artwork titles that often included puns. Some of Duchamp's works contained subversive criticisms about the art world, such as when he dubbed a urinal art and named it Fountain. He produced relatively few artworks and quickly moved through the avant-garde rhythms of his time. It's a pleasure to meet you. Forgive me, but you once said that the true artist had no choice but to go underground. Now you are truly underground. <laughs> My first question. Did you ever meet John Lennon? No, not in my lifetime, though we have subsequently. Of course, you know, I did meet with one of his wives, Yoko, in the early 60s. Yes, I have read that you unknowingly stepped into one of her Fluxus paintings. <laughs> Well, we will take her word that I did step there. It was a small space. I could very well have. It should also be said, the canvas was placed upon the floor for people to tread intentionally. I was never so critical or indifferent to wipe my feet on another's painting. So back to Lenin. You say you have now met in the afterlife? Yes. Well, this brings up many questions. Excuse me, but I fear we are drifting outside the scope of the interview. Well, yes, but my audience would never forgive me if I didn't ask. My favorite beetle is, uh, Mr. Harrison. Now I will say no more about pop music or this plane of existence. <laughs> we seem to be losing our connection to the ethereal plane. Mr. Wells, can you bring Mr. Duchamp back with your apparatus? Orson, Duchamp is fading. I take, well, I take directions from one person under protest. Jesus. Whatever you're trying isn't working. You don't know what I'm up against. Will you do this? It's impossible. We've lost him. Duchamp is gone. Good. Join me again for the next Dead Air. The man who hates crooks. 
The law that works by itself. The cop who can't stand to see a killer loose. So what is he? A hood and a mobster like his old man. It's interesting how blood will tell. Your old man would have been very proud of you to see how you finally followed in his footsteps. You and me ought to get very friendly when you're on your feet again, Dixon. There are a lot of things a smart cop could do for me. All I ever wanted was to measure up to my father. Now's your chance. He died in the line of duty, didn't he? Father, he has also killed. Is he a bad man? That's not true. Why? Because he does it in a tuxedo with a telephone call and a smart bomb. You are a monster. And my father is a great man. You're nothing like my father. You killed my father. Big mistake. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark. And Hamlet is taking out the trash. My father was a drinker. And a fiend. And one night, he goes off crazier than usual. Mommy gets the kitchen knife to defend herself. He doesn't like that. Not one bit. You know, you remind me of my father. I hated my father. Okay, stop. Now it's time to reveal the answer to the chapter and verse movie quiz for episode 12. The theme of that show was Rebel Rebel. The film was Rebel Without a Cause. That might have been an easy one. We played clips from the movie and a good portion of the soundtrack. But maybe you're too young to know that movie from the 50s. I was. Are you getting the swing of this quiz thing? The movies somewhat overlap. The first, uh, the first CNV quiz was Lindsay Anderson's "If" for the England Swing Show. "If" and "Rebel Without a Cause" have a lot in common. Both movies follow teenage school kids. They were filmed about a decade apart, but the first director approached for "If" was Nicholas Ray, the director of "Rebel." I've come to know and appreciate Nicholas Ray as a director of film noir style pictures. Films like They Live by Night and In a Lonely Place. Film dorks get on this. Rebel Without a Cause was a film starring James Dean. 
If you don't know who Dean was, you should think of Keith Ledger. Both actors died young. James Dean was a teen idol for my mother. She watched Rebel many times. We sat down and talked about the film together. So what did you think of that? This is my favorite scene. And you, you, you said before it started, there isn't much dialogue. There's Only towards the end do they start talking, really. Mm-hmm. That one, that one when they're coming down the street really made me think of... I, w- I was thinking they were going to burst into the West Side Story music. In yeah, just do, do a little raise legs, <laughs> throw their arms out, and do the snappy fingers. Right. This is the, this is this director's first uh, use of Cinemascope, a really wide format. And I think he was... Uh, he went to school as an architect. So I think the, the uh, planetarium architecture would have really appealed to him with the arches and the dome. And everything, and I think he used it pretty interesting. This is interesting. This scene with the city behind him. I think it elevates these punks and everything. It makes the drama like kind of mythic. Yeah, it's kind of like a western because he's trying not to fight, and the other guy's goading him. As this goes on, you can see they actually like each other. It's just the roles they're playing: new guy and leader of the gang. They have to do certain things for their audience. Right. But also, Buzz here on the right is, uh, to me, it's unspoken, but it looks like he's got a death wish. In the scene early, before this, I mentioned that the, the planetarium guy says the world's going to end and everything. And while the, it's showing the universe exploding, uh, Buzz is, like, enjoying it. In all the immensity of our universe and the galaxies beyond, the Earth will not be missed. Through the infinite reaches of space, The problems of man seem trivial and naive indeed. And man, existing alone, seems himself an episode of little consequence. That's all. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. Hey. Hey. It's all over. The world ended. It's supposedly this disaffectedness of the 50s I want to it's ba- very psychological I wanted to back it up to a scene with Natalie Wood who has no speaking part in this at all she has like a gasp escapes her lips I guess at one point when he ha- asked her a question she's going to check her face in the mirror and I, I want you to tell me what you think she's definitely enjoying it isn't she Look at this expression. She looks at herself in the mirror, touches and her like, face. It's like, oh, I gotta sit. It could be that, but I was thinking that she, all of a sudden, she didn't like her own reflection. Is That's that... probably what the, they intended. Oh, but I can be a femme fatale too. Why in Rebel Without a Cause, I play a very bad girl. Because she's she's enjoying it. She's she's the uh, spoils. Mm-hmm. Whoever wins gets her. There's something sexual about this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, with her legs like that? Yeah, and then he's going to penetrate this white wall uh-huh. with his knife. With her leg right there. And then as soon as he does, James Dean, as you hear this air escape from his tire, the air escapes out of James Dean, too. Like a frustrated, this has happened to him before, maybe. Even. Oh, geez, I got to go take care <laughs> of this. He really looks dorky in those pants. and The other guys have jeans on. Yeah, he's dressing like an adult, and they're dressing like punks. Well, they got their leather jackets. Now, Buzz has the leather jacket and the jeans, so he's realistic looking. Why is his top button button? 
Yeah. <laughs> and True. He, his too. He obviously told him, this is how we do it in our gang. Neat. <laughs> See, and Natalie is, like, excited. She doesn't have much of a character in this movie, but she's having problems at home with her dad. She, uh, she wants to hug him and kiss him, and he's, like, saying, you're too old for that. Get away from me. She definitely likes the action. Again, at the, uh, the car over the cliff scene, she's, like, all excited about these guys fighting and dying. The whole thing is very primitive. That's why it, it can work without dialogue. It's all visceral. Oh, look at She's up on the, on wall. the wall. James Dean knocks his knife out of his hand. Just kids. They're just playing around. Rebel Without a Cause overlaps into the theme of this rotcast. There are a lot of daddy issues in Rebel. In Rebel Without a Cause, James Dean basically has Mr. Magoo for a father. And he wishes Mr. Magoo was more of a man. A man with answers and integrity. But Jim, the character Dean plays, realizes he can be his own father figure. There are three characters that we follow in Rebel Without a Cause. Dean is one. Then there is the would-be girlfriend, Natalie Wood, Judy, who also has father issues. Her father is afraid to touch her now that she's becoming a woman. So there's that estrangement. Then there's Plato, who has abandonment issues from both his mother and his father. He's basically being raised by a maid, and he attaches himself to James Dean's character, and he looks up to him as a father figure. Rebel Without a Cause is filmed widescreen in full color and by a masterful director, even though the story is kind of lightweight. The situations are on the overblown, dramatic teen side of things. It's still worth the watch. Now it's time for the chapter and verse movie quiz. I'll describe one chapter taken from a DVD and you guess the film. Today's film will require several hints. This is one of only two movies I know of that combined the idea of time travel with serial killer. The first is uh, Nicholas Meyer's Time After Time. This isn't that movie. I also don't mean any of the Terminator movies. This isn't a machine that kills people. This is a person who kills people. The film was released in 2000. Your last hint is this movie fits well into the theme of this rotcast, Fathers. This chapter is chapter 10. It's called Repercussions. It's 6 minutes 40 seconds long. We're looking at a group of a doctor and two nurses in a hospital room. There are several foreground obstructions. There's a weigh scale placed in front of a glass partition. A rainbow is stuck to the center of the window on the hospital ward. There's a jump cut that centers one nurse. This introduces Julia. She slowly looks towards the camera and smiles. Several hospital workers pass in front of her. It's busy in here. We see her reverse angle. At the far end of the ward is a man in a brown leather jacket. This introduces Frank. He gives a little wave of his hand, and Julia crosses the hospital space to Frank. She asks what he's doing at the hospital. They embrace, and he says he just wanted to see her. He whispers in her ear that he isn't going anywhere. She says she had a bad feeling about him. 
Julia asks Frank did he give their son John his drops. One in each ear, boasts Frank. Then he says rather facetiously, What would you do without me? That is an ironic question at this point in the film. They sway as if they are dancing. Suddenly Julia sees something happening with her patient. She says, Oh my God, what's he doing? A young doctor is giving her patient the wrong medicine. She hurries over and takes the medicine out of the doctor's hand and tells the doctor that he almost killed the patient. Julia turns back to her husband, Frank, and shrugs as if to say, I have to go back to work now. He mouths a silent, I love you, and she does the same. He walks out of the emergency room doors. The camera pans up to a clock above the exit. It's 11.55. Julia stands over her patient, holding his wrist and taking his pulse. We see the patient's face through an oxygen mask. He has long hair and, and he hasn't shaved. He opens his eyes and looks at the nurse. There's a jump cut to a digital clock. It's 11.59 p.m. The scene changes to a low camera angle showing the legs and feet of people moving in slow motion. They are dressed in black. They are at a somber gathering. The camera is tilted to show we are seeing a dream. There are flowers in the shape of a cross and candles in the background. This is a viewing with a casket. We're in a living room setting where mourners sit with a casket. We see an isolated hand set against a black void. The hand is swinging a chain. It's a medallion. The scene cuts to a man in bed. He's upside down. He's tossing and turning. He is the dreamer. This introduces John. We start to see the faces of the mourners in his dream. A priest, a black woman. There are more foreground obstructions. The camera looks past blurry black draperies. The out-of-focus drapery acts as a mask for the camera shots and represents the fuzzy dream vision. This is intercut with more shots of John. In the dream, the camera centers on a boy dressed in black. We see he's crying. We've been seeing from his point of view the mourner's legs. He's sitting on the floor underneath a table. John is seeing himself as a boy at the funeral. We return to the hand holding the medallion. It continues to swing in slow motion against sheer blackness, like a pendulum clock. The camera zooms in on John tossing and turning. He's wet with sweat. We begin to see more faces of the mourners. They are looking directly into the face of the little boy under the table. They stare blankly. Now it's obvious that little boy John has lost someone close to him. Sleeping John becomes more agitated and knocks his bedside table and digital alarm clock on the floor. The medallion and chain reappears. It slips through the fingers of the hand as it falls. The medallion is in two places at once. It's in the dream and it's next to the digital clock falling next to sleeping John's bed. The sad boy casts his eyes down as a man crouches down to look under the table. It's Frank, the man with the leather jacket from the hospital. Frank stares at his son under the table with concern. The medallion hits the floor, but it isn't a carpeted bedroom floor or a living room floor. It hits a hard marble floor with a clink that echoes. With that sound, John sits up straight out of his nightmare. Cut to early morning, still at John's house. He walks down the hallway in a sweat-soaked nightshirt into the kitchen. Then out of frame for a second, 
He returns to the kitchen with a cordless phone. He calls his mother, but he gets a deli. He redials. Again, he gets Noah's deli. He looks confused. I'm eliminating a scene here where John finds his current girlfriend at the library, and she doesn't know him. The space-time continuum has changed. There's a quick pan through an office space. We see more glass partitions. There's more foreground people and fixtures blurred out of focus. We're in a police station. John is now checking in at work. His older partner sees him arrive. He makes a grimace. This introduces Satch, John's senior partner at the police department. John heads into the restroom. He's bent low over a sink holding his head. The camera pans up into a mirror to show Satch push open the door and enter the bathroom. He approaches ready to give John a hard time for being late. Satch asks John with a sneer of resentment, another hard night? We see the reverse angle as John looks up into a mirror over his sink. He recognizes the tone in Satch's voice and his lack of concern. Maybe Satch is thinking he's hungover. John angrily agrees with Satch. He says, yeah, it was a hard night. Satch walks out of the bathroom and John follows down the hall into the main office. Satch hands John a file folder. They move towards their desks. The desks are set so they face each other. Satch looks down at the work on his desk. He says, bad memories. Bad memories. You imagine the odds of us digging up a Nightingale murder? She makes 10. 10? No, I remember this case. It was three. He killed three women. What are you talking? You know better than anybody, John. You looked at these files a thousand times. John looks through photos taken at crime scene excavations. There are photos of a skeleton hand and arm. John pulls another photo from a stack. This photo shows more of the skeleton. It is half uncovered from the earth. The body lays face down. The hands are tied behind the back of the body with a plaid strip of cloth. Satch hands John a fat stack of ten folders, all victims of the serial killer. John sits at his desk and looks confused. He shuffles through the stack of folders. Each folder has a small mugshot of the victim stapled to the outside front of the folder. John moves a few folders off the top, then slides the pile sideways until he sees the folder he fears he will find. He puffs his cheeks a bit like he wants to puke, and utters, No! Satch looks on, worried at the strange reaction. There's a close-up of a black-and-white crime scene photo of a woman dead. We see the name on the folder. John shakes his head once and drops the folder. The photo stapled to the outside of the folder is a portrait of his mother smiling and leaning against a tree in front of their house. That's chapter 10. Do you know this movie? Hear the answer in the next episode, number 14. Say goodbye to your father. Let's get started. It's all I can do for you, son. Now go, change your stars and live a better life than I have.
Father. I'm afraid. Of what? I won't know the way back home. Don't be foolish, William. You just follow your feet. Now you um go ahead and you uh, get some rest. I'm I'm tired too. I almost don't want to click off yet. Like um, maybe we won't get this back. We will. Okay. I'll be here tomorrow. I know. I love you, son. I, uh... I love you too, Dad. I've, um... I've missed you so much. musical bed you're hearing is called Haunted by Kim Schutterley. You can contact us by email. Our address is mail at rockcast.com. You can leave a message in two ways. Either use the 206 Rotline number found on the website www.rotcast.com or make a free Skype call and leave a message. Our Skype name is Call Rotcast. That's C-A-L-L-R-O-T-C-A-S-T. Visit the website to learn more about the wines and link to more content. Listen next time when you will hear... Books and TV programs make the work of forensic science technicians seem fast-paced and exciting. In real life, however... Their job is more likely to be as slow and painstaking as it is important. Forensic science technicians work at the scene of a crime and in laboratories. They perform tests on weapons or they examine substances such as fiber, hair and tissue to determine a connection to the crime and to a suspect. Some forensic science technicians specialize in particular areas such as fingerprinting, DNA and handwriting analysis, biochemistry, or ballistics. They prepare reports to document their findings and the laboratory techniques used. While much of their expertise and deductive abilities come from experience, forensic science technicians are usually college graduates having taken courses in subjects ranging from criminology to biology. Forensic science technicians are a crucial part of our legal system. They might be called upon to testify as expert witnesses. Their evidence and testimony can help send the guilty to prison or clear the innocent.